If you would, open up your Bible, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 will be in verses 1 through 7 uh, this morning. Um, my name is Wilson Van Hooser. I'm the RUF campus minister here at, at OSU. And uh, man, um, obviously as Ryan mentioned earlier, I'm still trying to figure out what we're doing this summer. Um, but we know what we're doing this weekend. This weekend we're celebrating Memorial Day. And uh, originally known as Decoration Day, it was uh, originated during the years following the Civil War. And in 1971, it, was, uh, it became a federal holiday. But did you know that we're also celebrating something uh, today that's actually been celebrated for over a thousand years for Christians? It's Trinity Sunday. Today is Trinity Sunday. It is the first Sunday after Pentecost. And uh, it's a day where we remember uh, most ultimately who our God is. How our God, the God of the Bible, is unique. And that's what we're, we're going to study this morning. That's what we're going to proclaim and who we're going to worship this morning. So with that in mind, let's, let's read Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, when the fullness of time had come, God, talking about the father, sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Our triune God, we praise you as the one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though we can't understand you in totality, we worship you in humility. And so, Father, we're asking that we might understand who you are as our triune God. And we're entreating you because of the Son's work on, on our behalf and and we're asking, O Holy Spirit, that, that you would breathe life into us. That you would open up our eyes to this revelation of who our God is. So this morning, would you seize our attention? And would you capture our heart's affections? May your word go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In 2014, in one of our first meetings with the Green Bay Packers during rookie minicamp, uh, we were told some very important information. And the information was this, is that the town of Green Bay owns the team. Now, why in the world would that have mattered to us hopeful NFL players? Well, it's because of this, because if... If we were going to be members of the Packers organization, we needed to know this information because what we knew influenced who we would be during our time there. And that's a good principle. 
what you know influences who you are and how you will live. A.W. Tozer, the theologian, once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? Because what you know, who you know, influences who you are. And in our text, we see here in Galatians 4, we read about our triune God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, yet one simple and undivided being. But you might ask, well, what does the Trinity have to do with real life? We're, we love real life, practical things in the church, don't we? Well, I'd argue it has everything to do with real life because all life comes from the Trinity. All order and beauty and purpose and identity and distinction comes from the Trinity. All life, providence, revelation, and redemption. Heaven itself is a place where we are caught up into the life of communion with the Trinity. And if God has revealed himself as Trinity, then as Scripture says this, it has everything to do with life and godliness. So before we begin to think that maybe the doctrine of the Trinity is merely for theological speculation, I will make an argument of this. It is the most important doctrine for the Christian. And it is actually to the extent that you know God as the triune God that you experience your salvation. What you know influences who you are so we're going to look at four simple points this morning first what is the trinity second who is the father third who is the son and fourth who is the holy spirit so first let's look at what is the trinity well to help us to help us explain the trinity we actually need to first explain what the trinity is not maybe you've heard some of these the Trinity is not like the three stages of water where it is water and then, you know, ice and then vapor. It's not like an egg that's made up of the shell, the white, or the yolk. The Trinity is not like the three-leaf clover. Please don't do that. The Trinity is also not one community of three separate people. It is not one society of three separate beings. Trinity actually is like trying to draw a picture of gravity or of love. You can't draw a picture of gravity or love in and of itself. You can draw the effects of gravity and love. You can draw what gravity and love does, but to draw it in and of itself, you can't do it. But we all know it exists, right? And we know how to talk about it with some certainty with other people. And so it is with the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery, but yet we know that our triune God is true. What is the Trinity? The Trinity is one God in three persons. Not, not three gods or one God wearing three different masks. The Trinity is one God in three persons. And it is the, the unbegotten Father begetting His Son and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all three persons sharing that same simple, undivided essence. So we can say that 
The Father is God, the, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But yet we do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God in three persons. Are you confused yet? Are you bored yet? You might be tempted to think some of these thoughts already. Well, if I can't totally understand the Trinity, then what's the use? I don't really know if this doctrine is going to help me grow in my faith. Or you might even think, if this isn't practical, then what's the use for studying it? Don't we have, this is very common, don't we have bigger problems in the world right now to spend our time thinking about than the doctrine of the Trinity? But let me remind you about what I learned at the Packers. What you know influences who you are. And when you know this triune God, it will absolutely affect everything that you come across in life. That's the Trinity. Let's dive to, in order to understand the Trinity a little bit deeper, let's look at each individual person. So first off, who is the Father? We see in our text, look at verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Now, most often in Scripture, when the Bible uses the word God, it is speaking particularly of the Father. And here we see it. it is the Father who is sending his Son. The Father is the first person of the Trinity. He's not first because he's greater than the other persons. He is first in order. And we must know God as Father because when you think about it, if we merely know God as God, then all of a sudden his holiness, his power, his justice, his glory are, frankly, very intimidating. But Jesus has told us that we are to know this God as Father and as our Father. So who is he? Who is he and what does he do? Well, the Father, as Exodus 3 verse 14 says, the Father is the great I am. Not the I was or the maybe I will be. He is the I am. He has always existed. And there's never been a time when he has not been in existence. Indeed, we could say that of our God, he is outside of time itself. He is the maker of time. Does that blow your mind? Just sit down and think about what eternity must be like. You're going to want to take a nap. No one stands behind the Father giving him his being. He is the unmoved mover. He is the origin of all things. No one begets him or gives him origin. You see, the Father is, he is always the Father. There was never a time when the Father was not the Father. See, about 17 months ago, um, I became a father to that little rascal back there who is playing with Emily Baker. His name is Knox, and uh, he's a crazy one. We love him. Um, but about 17 months ago, there was a point in time when I was not a father and I became a father. Now, that is an analogy to what this relationship of the father to the son is. But here's the question. At what point in time did the father become father? Never. 
because God himself is outside of time. As Augustine says when he is thinking about Psalm 2, verse 7, when it says, uh, talking about uh, begetting the son, the question is, when did that begetting happen if there is no time that is bounding God? In other words, when is today for God? It is always. There was never a time when the father was not the father. As one author says, from all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple, undivided, divine essence to the Son. He has always, always in eternity been overflowing and giving being to the Son. That is who the Father is. What does the Father do? Well, the Trinity is, the Trinity is revealed in creation and redemption and revelation. And we see in in these, that the Father is someone who overflows, he is someone who gives, he is someone who sends, he is someone who reaches out, he is someone who loves, he is not like uh, a vending machine. You gotta take money, you gotta take coins, or now it's pretty awesome, you can take even your debit card. And you have to give something to the vending machine and then it will give you a product. That is not like the Father. No, he is not standing back saying, I'm waiting for someone to give me something and then I will give. That is not who he is. He doesn't have his hands tied or someone standing behind him giving him some sort of holy peer pressure to create or redeem. Rather, the Father has overflowed in mere delight in his creation. And you need to think about this. If the Father is the creator then that means he creates as Father. He sustains and nourishes and cares for it as Father. The Father is never not Father. Um, as a new parent, I have learned this temptation uh, to want to take time off of my fatherly duties, and it typically happens whenever... Me and Grace smell something that is not a normal smell in the room, and we just stare at each other to figure out who's going to change the diaper, okay? But see, the father is, he's never someone who takes time off of being father. He is always father. The father is not only father in the work of creation, but he's also father in the work of redemption. And if the father, think about this, if the Father begets the Son, then it is very fitting in His character that He might also send His Son to save us. The Father freely sends Him. He's not obligated to do so. He's not hearing some sinner's prayer who is crying out for help, and then He says, ah, oh, that's a really eloquent prayer. Why don't you go down there and save them? He freely does it. And that's what, ma that's what makes his infinite love so gracious. Now, you might be asking, okay, who cares? How does this help us today on Trinity Sunday, Memorial Day weekend in 2021? Here's, here's what it means about the Father. Because the Son of the Father comes down to save us, it means that the Son brings us back into relationship with the Father. And that's what our text says. That to, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Not merely 
people in God's kingdom. We are family members. The Father is our Father. You see, Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Him, talking about Christ, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Here's why it's important. is because the Father, through the work of the Son, He brings us into familial, personal, and loving relationship to Himself. In other words, the Father is not far off unconcerned, distant, harsh, or rough. He is, he's near, he's kind, he is tender. Dear Christian, he is always father. It means we're adopted. It means that we are loved with an infinite love that envelops us for all eternity. You see, as the Father is Father in His being, He is also Father in all of His works, and that means this. I want you to think about this. You see what this means, right? If the Father is Father in everything that He does, then it means, dear Christian, that the way that He deals with you, He always deals with you in love. We're often suspicious of authority today, often teaching younger generations to despise and distrust authority Sometimes as if to say that any authority or any hierarchy of any kind is bad and bound for immeasurable corruption. And we despise today anything that reminds us of patriarchy. But here's the thing that we must remember. Is that the God of the Bible, God's fatherly love and his protection and his discipline cannot be compared to earthly, fallen, sinful people. Your thoughts of the Father are too small if you think you know everything about him. The philosopher Michael Foucault fell into this trap because of his relationship with his father. His father was a surgeon and his father wanted to toughen young Michael up. And so what would he do? He would force his son to witness amputations. And so Foucault, as he grew up and became a a renowned philosopher, he wrote most of his work about how evil authority was, thinking about his father. But for the younger Foucault, obviously this was a nightmare that was just reoccurring of how demanding a sovereign patriarch would be. And one author says, for Foucault, paternal power was not used to care, to nurture, and to bless. And you might experience something, something, something similar to Foucault. But you cannot take that measure of an earthly sinful fallen father or an authority and project that onto your heavenly father. Because that's not who he is. He is always truly infinitely father. It's, it's who he is. It's, indeed, we could say the, the measure of all fatherhood and the measure of all authority and the measure of all love is him. And matter of fact, we could say when we truly know this father, we cannot but be loving. This is the first person of the Trinity. And when we know this father, it will influence who we are. That is the father, but 
We also have the Son. You see Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth who? His Son. The Son is the second person of the Trinity who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He's not a He's not a demigod or he's not a really good man who was then adopted by God. He is, he is not uh, the greatest and first created being. He eternally is the second person of the Trinity. The Son is the only begotten Son, the eternally begotten Son of the Father. As John 3.16 says, and often modern translations unfortunately take this word out, but maybe you remember it this way. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his what? His only begotten son. That word begotten is in the Greek. It's there. It, what does it mean to be begotten? It, it means to, to come forth from someone. And it is in this earthly analogy when we think about, as I mentioned earlier, how Knox has been begotten from Grace and I, but that is merely an earthly analogy, but how it happens in heaven is vastly, infinitely different. You see, there was never a time when the Son was not in existence. There was never a, a time when the Father was not Father. For all eternity, there has been the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that's what it says in Psalm 2, verse 7, as I mentioned earlier, Today I have begotten you. The question is, when is today for God? Whew. Think about that all afternoon. You have a good Sunday afternoon nap. What does it mean? It means that the Son, who is eternally begotten by the Father, it, it means he is of the same essence. So in other words, we cannot say this about the Son of God. That there is something about God that is lacking in him. But that everything that makes God God is, is in the sun, let me, let me paint you this way. Look at these lights. These lights are bright, and when lights come on, there is automatically brightness. Brightness is never separated from light. So the Father has never been separated from the Son. The Son never had a time when He came into being. He has always existed. Because if at one point in history, if if at one point the Son, at one point came into being, then at one point the Father was not Father. You see that? That's why we read in the Nicene Creed, you have that big portion of text on the front of your bulletin. We read about the Son, that He is very God of very God. You see... In John 14, verse 6, Jesus calls himself the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now think about this. Follow me here. If the Son of God, if he is the truth, and if at one point there was a time when the Son of God was not in existence, then at one point the Father is without truth. That's impossible. You see... The Son is also the wisdom of God. He is the glory of God. There has never been a time when God has been without wisdom or without the radiance of his glory because if there was, then he would not be God. The Son is the Son distinguished only in his eternal relation with the Father. 
But what does the Son do? Well, because of who the Son is, He is the one who has come down to save you, dear Christian. And O sinner who has, who has not repented yet, He is the one and only Savior for you. And it is that second person of the Trinity who has clothed himself with flesh. He has come and walked amongst us. Jesus was sent by the Father. And it's important because we need to think about this. In Jesus' earthly life, when he submitted to his Father on earth, watch this. He must do that as the second Adam. But as he submits to his father while on earth, that does not mean that in all eternity he was subordinate or lesser than the father. Make sense? Nodding heads? Let me paint it this way. Um, you know the, the, the Mona Lisa? Of course you do. Um, the Mona Lisa is a painting of a woman named Lisa Giardini. I hope I'm saying that right. But one thing we know about the actual woman, Lisa, is that she is not literally made up of canvas and paint, is she? No. It is an analogy to her. And there's some sort of earthly analogy of what's going on about the eternal relations between the Father and the Son, but it is not identical. You see, you might be asking once again, why in the world does this matter? Here's why it matters. The Son must be God. Because if the Son is not truly God and truly man, you will not be saved. And your sins would forever plummet you into the depths of hell. It means that the man Jesus Christ who was nailed to the tree was none other than the eternal Son of God in our flesh. It means that God loved us so much that He did not just offer salvation to us from afar like He's you know, throwing a t-shirt into the stands at a, at a sporting event. It means that he himself took on flesh to save us. It means he became a baby in a feeding trough. It means that he ran around on this earth with other little knock-sized children during his day. He worked as a carpenter, he went around teaching about the kingdom of God, and finally when he went to the cross, he didn't just die some physical excruciating death. He, as the son of God, true God and true man, he was our substitute. And it is only as he is true God and true man that that infinite gap can be bridged so that you can come back to the Father. My friends, let me tell you something. Everything depends on this. Everything depends on the Son being the Son. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 26, he prays that the love with which the Father, the love with which the Father loved the Son, that, that, might, that love might be in us. Here's why it matters. Because when you, when you are, as this text says, as you are brought into adoption as sons, as you are saved, as you come to Jesus Christ, you are not on the JV team in heaven. You are not barely in the kingdom. The infinite love that the Father has given His Son for all eternity is now yours. You know what it means? 
you can never think too highly of God's love for you. Indeed, all of us in here are thinking too lowly about God's love for us. It means we can stop playing the he loves me, he loves me not game. You know, when you have a flower and you pick off a petal one by one and one petal says he loves me or he loves me not. I promise I never played that. Um, thank you for reading my sarcasm. Um, I, want you to, I want you to hear this, dear Christian. God is not doing that with you. I will love her today. I'm not going to love her today. He is always infinitely, eternally loving you. That's who the Son is. And see, how we know the Son, what we know about the Son influences who we are. Fourthly, we need to look at the third person of the Trinity because our God is not done. We need to see the Holy Spirit. The Father, the unbegotten Father, begets the Son and the Holy Spirit proceeds from them both. Whoosh, yes, I know. Everything that makes God, God is the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit is not just some force or energy or power that you just need to dive into. And once you tap into that energy, then you will experience it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's He. He is God. He is to be worshipped. He is to be prayed to. He. He is to be communed with. You see, we are often like the people in Ephesus in Acts 19, verse 2. They tell Paul, they said, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. Now, we might not necessarily in this church or in our denomination, we might not verbally deny the Holy Spirit, but we practically deny him so often by so much of us trying to say, I'm going to make my life work. I'm going to get my life together. The Nicene Creed says, once again, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. You see, as the sun, that big blazing hot ball in the sky that gets really bad in the summer, that thing, the sun is never without light. So the Father and the Son are never without the Holy Spirit. See, why is this incredible? Because it means this. This is why Jesus can say in John 15, verse 26, but when the helper comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Did you know, dear Christian, that God, when you were saved, did not stand far off and say, I hope that now they become great moral people in this society. And as long as they have some sort of a biblical worldview and they're moral and they are patient and kind with people, I am satisfied. He does not stand back and do that. Do you know what he does? He actually comes to make his home in you. He is loving. See, what is it? Think about this. Uh, I'm from the deep south, maybe it's more relevant there, but I'm sure it's relevant here. Good manners, good manners says, I'm thinking about you. Love says, I am here with you. 
God is not someone who just, just has good manners. He is someone who is love, as John 4, 8 says. He says, I am Emmanuel. I am here with you. And that is what it means that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And what happens when he indwells us, look at verse 6 in our text. He says, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And then what will happen? What, what will happen when we have the Holy Spirit? Here's what will happen. We will cry out, Abba, Father. No longer, dear Christian, do you have to sit back and say, is God going to dump out his wrath on me today because I messed up again? The Holy Spirit, he teaches you to say, Abba, Father. As a living person is never without their breath, so the Father and the Son are never without the Holy Spirit. That's who he is. He is co-eternal, co-equal of the same essence. What does he do? 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom it means that what the holy spirit does god does and that this the massive redemptive event that that y'all would have looked at last week of pentecost is when the holy spirit just flooded the church in ways to equip them for god's mission and indeed, this is God's master plan, is that he would give us the Holy Spirit to accomplish God-sized results in God's ways. He is completing his mission through us by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit's not on the JV team. He's not a backup player. He's kind of good, but whenever we really start doing well, we'll just kind of put him in. No, no, no. He is the star. And we are nothing without him. That's why Jesus can say yet again in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. I want you to think about that. For these 11 disciples, after Judas had left Jesus during this time, these 11 disciples who are hearing Jesus speak, and they hear him say, Hey, it's to your advantage that I go away. Um, Jesus, I don't know how that is possible. Because if you are the Messiah, and you are going to leave us, where is our hope? Here's why it's to our advantage. Because the Holy Spirit is God. And he brings us in union with Christ. That's why Michael Reeves says that the way the Father makes known his love is precisely through giving his Spirit. So what? What does it mean? Here's what it means. It means that the Holy Spirit, after the Son has redeemed us, the Holy Spirit comes and he applies it. I love that. The title of his great book, John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Matthew Barrett, in this quote on the front of your bulletin, he says this. If the gospel reveals a Trinitarian descent then our reception of that gospel involves an ascent into the Trinitarian life. Do you see that? Do you know what it means to be saved? Not merely that now I can polish up my resume. Now all of a sudden I can get the things that I want. Now all of a sudden that if I believe enough, then I can be whatever I dream to be. Here's what it means to be saved. 
that God the Father sent the Son, and then they both sent the Holy Spirit to save us from being dead in our sins, and they bring us back into life and fellowship with God. And that is what makes heaven, heaven. As Jonathan Edwards says, that is what makes heaven a world of love. See, the Holy Spirit, he desires to save us, to to love us, to change us, to sanctify us, to make us more like the Son. And you see this, right? That the more you know this, don't you see how it influences who you are? One theologian has said, is it too much of a coincidence that the advance of atheism, how how would you finish that sentence? What might be the, the... maybe relevant cause of the advance of atheism within these past several decades? Is it too much of a coincidence that the advance of atheism parallels the retreat of the church on the Trinity? Maybe I can make another argument saying this. Maybe our functional atheism today is because we've thought the Trinity is irrelevant. Donald Gray Barnhouse went back to preach at his seminary several years after he had graduated, and one of his former professors came to hear him preach. And at the close of the meeting, his old professor came up to him and said this, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. I am glad that you are a big God preacher. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I will know what their ministry will be. So, dear Grace Church, will we be big godders or little godders? Because if your God does not drown you in his being, or if he is like a trinket that you think you can manipulate and have all on your own, and we will have very little impact in today's society. And you will experience very little of your salvation. But if you see him, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the life in which you're caught up in, that will radically affect the way you treat other people. It will radically affect the way you relate to him. This God of love who has come to save you. What you know influences who you are. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that uh, maybe in something that might be difficult to comprehend or something we don't necessarily see the relevance in, ultimately what we need most is to worship you. And I pray, I pray that this would move us to worship you. Because if we worship you, that is how we're restored to the image of Christ. So help us. Help us to live in communion with you as our triune God. To not neglect you, to not think of you in this way, but to love you and to cherish you as you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.